Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 144 of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. How are you? I'm good. I'm jazzed for this weekend. It's Masters one of the time. biggest weekends of the year. It's Masters week. I got my golf socks on, got my golf shirt on. So I'm ready to go. For our viewers and listeners that don't know Mark extremely well, Avid golfer, very good at golf, huge Tiger Woods fan. I don't, I don't know if very good at golf is a accurate description, but okay. Well, that's my it. opinion. That's a <laughs> that's a, it's not a fact. It's my opinion. But um, big big weekend with Tiger entering the race this weekend. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, you know, I just grew up. You know, when he was in his prime, and you know, he was just you know, someone that I looked up to when, you know, you're growing up as a young athlete trying to emulate, you know, somebody in that, in that sport. And, you know, what I was telling Sydney and Sarah and Megan, um, earlier this morning and Jenna was that, you know, he had his car accident, uh, year and a half or almost two years ago now Sounds maybe about right um and he, he almost had to have his leg amputated and I, t- I told them it would be amazing from a for a 25 year old to come back and play competitively on the pga tour would be amazing but now that he's doing it at you know 45 ish years old is amazing is incredible and i think um i don't think it's a matter of his swing or anything like that it's if he can walk around augusta for four straight rounds and and not get ex- extremely exhausted because he's walking on that leg and for those who don't know augusta has a lot of elevation changes right correct so it's a lot of ups and downs hills so it's not like walking a flat course in exactly. ohio <laughs> exactly um so but what i also told them was he wouldn't tee it up this week if he didn't think he had a shot bingo so that's I why think, it's exciting. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see. I think it'd be a win if he makes the cut and makes it to the weekend. So uh, I think he goes off at 1104 uh, this morning. So I love, be, you know, the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a nerd out on this stuff. So I like, for our avid listeners, now, you know, something new about Mr. McEvely. Yeah, I like uh, finance, wine and golf. Three, three major hobbies. <laughs> the trifecta. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, anyways, uh, I'll give you my pick. I think Justin Thomas gets it done and wears a green jacket on All right. Sunday. So All right. We'll see if, uh, we'll see what happens in the podcast next week. We'll talk yeah, about it. Sounds good. Um, so before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on April 6th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index down 1.09% for the month and down 6% for the year. The Dow down a half a percent for the month and down 5% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index down 0.4% for the month and down 9.2% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 2.5% for the month and down 10% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, down 0.75% for April and down 6.72% for the year. 
The three-month T-bill yielding 0.67%, the two-year Treasury yield at 2.43%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 2.56%. Big news headlines, current events from the week, Matt. Obviously, the biggie, uh, the big elephant in the room is the two-year and 10-year yield curve inverting uh, last week on March 29th. Um, I'm going to you know, spend most of my time today discussing this because of the immediate attention that it's garnered over the past week. So I'm going to dive a little deeper into this in a little bit. Okay. Uh, President Biden announced the release of roughly a million barrels of oil a day from U.S. reserves for uh, the next six months. Um, That historic drawdown underscores the White House's concerns about rising prices. Do you have anything to add there? I think it's a horrible move. (laughs) <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, the, uh, the unofficial start uh, to Q1 uh, 2022 earnings uh, season begins on April 13th with big banks reporting like JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, City. Um, so those uh, are coming up. It seems like just, you know, when we end earnings season, it's almost rolling, just just like never ending. Yeah, it's funny because obviously we do this every day. I feel bad sometimes for listeners because we finally sound like a broken record about earnings season, mm-hmm. you know. But so we think of the calendar, listeners and viewers, when you have the, say, January beginning, most companies are going to report end of January, beginning of February. And then obviously it's going to repeat quarter after quarter. Mm-hmm. And just take 30 seconds and explain to people why that's important, Mark. Why are earnings reports so important? Well, it gives investors uh, insight into how the company performed in the past quarter um, relative to year-over-year comparisons. And also, um, it, it hasn't been as prevalent now because of COVID, but usually they give guidance on what investors can expect over the next quarter or over the next year. Bingo. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's important for, for, you know, active investors to pay attention to they that They tend stuff. to be a big catalyst for stocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Catalysts or, uh, you know, uh, either way, either way, down. right. Up or down. Yeah. Yeah. Headwind or tailwind. Right. Um, last but not least, the Biden administration, uh, is extending the student loan payment moratorium until the end of August. So uh, plain English, people with federal student loans will not have to pay on them uh, now until the end of August. So this is something. What's your thoughts on that? uh, It's interesting. Um, You know, the side of it that I see that's positive, it's like, yeah, it's giving people more time to, you know, get back on their feet and, you know, have a steady job. before making their payments again but it's like you know you're just like kicking the can down the street at this point yeah i'm neutral on this one yeah i'm kind of in the middle of the road you know um the oil thing i just think that ultimately that needs to be saved for what it needs to be saved for this it's like i don't know it's tough because i see both sides of it i really do yeah so i don't know maybe they're um you know, one theory behind this is that they could be kicking it the can down the road until they decide formally if they're going to forgive that 10000 for everybody that they talked Possibly, about. Right. Um, so I think, you know, best case scenario is they make a decision on that before August. And then whatever that decision is, you know, my two cents loan is payments go back to like uh, forgive, say, 10000 I'd wait till inflation starts to die down a little bit. You don't want to mm-hmm. add fuel to the fire right now. Right. So maybe their thought process is. Okay, we're going to do that, but we're going to wait for better timing. Yeah. If that's the thought process and that's what they want to do, that's smart. Mm -hmm. 
but now's not the time to forgive that, in my opinion, with the inflation numbers you're getting. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, moving on, the tweets, articles, and research from the week. Um, so I'm going to spend, like I said earlier, the most of my time on the yield curve. So I kind of want to just dig into what the yield curve is. You know, what does it normally look like? Why does it invert? Um, that type of stuff. So stop me at any point, Matt, if you want further explanation on anything. I'd love that you're going to talk about this because it is in the news headlines, but most people have no idea what this term means. Right. Yeah. I mean, several years ago, I was like, yield curve. What does that mean? So yeah. in inversions and all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So this will be very educational. Yeah. So um, just kind of to start, you know, basically the yield curve is is the spread or the difference uh, between the yield on two different U.S. government treasury bonds that have different maturity dates, right? right? And you can do this with any debt, but we're just sticking to government debt for this purposes. Um, and you can think of yield as the income returned to investors on a certain investment, right? So if you buy a bond for $10,000 and you're expected to receive interest payments of $200 throughout the year, the yield on that bond is said to be 2%, right? Yes, sir. Um, so the U.S. government issues bonds or notes that mature at different dates. OK, yep. so the the most popular U.S. government bonds that are issued have a maturity of three months, uh, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. OK, so the yield curve is simply comparing the yield or the interest rate on two different maturing U.S. government bonds. OK, mm -hmm. so the most popular bonds that are compared to one another is the two year U.S. Treasury bond and the 10 year U.S. Treasury bond. And to get this data point or the yield curve, you take the yield on the 10 year and subtract the yield on the two year. So um, I provided an example of kind of what this yield curve looks like in the show notes. So it'll be up on the screen here right now for people watching on YouTube. Um, but this will also be in our show notes uh, on Facebook at Jessup Wealth Management or LinkedIn Jessup Wealth Management or on Twitter uh, at Jessup Wealth. Um, so in a normal environment, which which you'll see here is that the yield curve is upward sloping. So in this example, that means that the yield on the 10 year bond is greater than the yield on the two year bond. This is a normal environment. And that makes sense, right? Because right. investors should be compensated for tying their money up for a longer period of time. Absolutely. Okay. But there are rare instances where the yield curve inverts, meaning the two-year bond is yielding more than the 10-year bond. Which is uncommon, but it happens. Which is very uncommon. This means, in my opinion, that investors are pricing in more risk in the near term than they are in the long term. And this typically coincides with a slower-growing economy, it's happened uh, a few times over the, the past several decades, okay? So uh, the past, you know, six times this has happened um, where the two and 10-year yield curve has inverted was in August of 78, September of 80, December of 88, uh, May of 98, December of 05, and August of 2019, OK, mm -hmm. so um, I want to go into a couple more research points before I, I make a couple closing comments. So this okay. comes from a tweet by Callie Cox, who we've mentioned on the show before. 
Um, she tweeted this on March 29th. The yield curve typically inverts before recessions. How long before? That's the question. In the past six economic cycles, the two and 10 year spread has initially fallen negative an average of 18 months before the economy has peaked. The range anywhere from five to 33 months. It's a big range. Yep. So uh, a, a research letter that I, I subscribed to called the chart report uh, had some more uh, commentary on this. Okay. Um, the two 10-year yield curve briefly inverted today for the first time since 2019, and this was on March 29th. The yield curve has been known to be one of the best leading economic indicators out there. It has inverted before all of the past 10 recessions since 1950, but there are some important caveats to consider. For starters, another closely watched part of the yield curve is the three-month and 10-year yield curve. This is nowhere near inversion. Kelly also points out that it has historically taken anywhere from five to 33 months to see a recession after the two and 10 year curve has inverted in the past. The last time it inverted in 2019, the S&P 500 rallied another 17% in less than six months before peaking along with the economy. This is definitely worth keeping in mind, but it can be psychologically and financially painful to try and time this signal. So I think the major takeaway from this, Matt, is that most people are going to pay attention to the fact that inversion of the yield curve indicates a recession's on the horizon. That's, you know, people are going to read that and be like, okay, stuff's going to go south here. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to point out that while, yes, this has been the case in the past, this is not a great timing indicator as stocks have performed quite well after the first yield curve inversion. Correct. Um, so, you know, it, it, like Callie said, you know, it's anywhere between five and 33 months when the yield curve inverted in 2019, in the summer of 2019. It wasn't that long until March of 2020, where we had a market uh, market correction and bear market, if you want to call it, during COVID. Makes you wonder if COVID didn't happen, will we have had a recession in 20? Right, exactly. So, um, again, it, it could, you know, recession could be, you know, five months away or it could be, you know, 30 months away. We don't know. So, I don't want people to think that just because the yield curve inverted means you need to get super ultra defensive right now because I actually was listening to a podcast yesterday and I can't remember exactly the source, um, but someone did a back test on, you know, going to defensive, uh, a defensive stance in your portfolio when the yield curve inverted. Initially when it does. Initially when it does. And it turns out that it was a bad move. It was an underperformer. Yeah, yeah. it was a bad move. Um, second on this was a tweet from Ryan Dietrich on March 29th. He said the last four times the two 10 year yield curve inverted, the S&P 500 was up an average of 28.8% before the market peak. Ultimate peak was on average 17 months later. Recession started 21 months later. Yes, it's a warning, but it's not so simple. And last but not least from our friend JC Peretz. Uh, he said the twos, tens uh, inverted today. Stocks usually do well after the yield curve inverts. In fact, before the S&P 500 peaked in 2007, the yield curve had inverted almost two years earlier. Also, the twos and tens have been flattening for over a year now, so it's not like this is big, shocking news. Amen. Yeah. So, um, again, I just wanted to 
provide more education on you know what the yield curve is, what it means, and that it's not necessarily a great timing indicator. However, you know if history repeats itself and rhymes, you know within the next 30, 35 months, I it's would possible. expect a recession. It's yeah. possible. Yeah. The other thing I'll kind of throw out there is, you know, when you see these headlines hit and then you have knee jerk reactions, let's assume for this case that, you know, people sell equities with this type of headline, you know, the market digest it. And then next thing you know, we're at the end of April with earnings season. And let's go under the disguise that earnings season is really good. You know, a lot of people are going to miss out on some opportunities potentially mm -hmm. if earnings do end up coming in better than expected. Yeah. And I will note that Wall Street was drastically wrong in last earnings season and the beat rate was above like 85 percent mm -hmm. could happen again yeah it's possible uh switch over to you all right so the first thing i got is i want to put into perspective gasoline prices because we keep hearing analogies to where gasoline is today and where it was in the past but no one is showing the numbers inflation adjusted Okay. So this uh, piece of research is from Evergreen uh, Gavekel on March 30th, and it goes back to 1994, and it shows U.S. retail gasoline prices adjusted for wages going back to 94. And if you look at it, it peaked in June of 2008. The inflation-adjusted price mark would have been an average in the U.S. of $6.13 a gallon. Could you imagine that now? Yeah, it'd be anarchy. It'd be anarchy, baby. The equivalent, you know, is obviously, you know, we're in the fours right now. We're in the mid fours right now here in the U.S. I like to show this because this also shows that we go through trends with this. You're actually starting to see rig counts go up. It's shocking that I'm actually seeing that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Rig counts are going up. So ultimately, what will happen? What does that what does that mean for people that rig counts? Thank you. Go I up? apologize. So what it means is more um, more holes are being drilled in the U.S. and more oil is being pumped than previously. Yeah, and it's steadily going up. And what I think will happen, like it always happens, is you go through periods where overproduction occurs, and that could happen the next several years, especially if we hit a recession in the next thirty six months where they're drilling this oil. And if you have too much oil, what happens to prices? Comes down. Comes down. So if I were to pull up, and I'll verbalize it because I haven't memorized, because I looked at it yesterday. If you look at the futures curve on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for West Texas crude right now, it's around roughly $100 for an immediate delivery at the end of this month. If you look out a year to Q1 and Q2 of 23, it's in the 80s. It's very rare for the commodities markets to be in something called backwardation, which plainly means the price today is more expensive than where it will be in the future. So the market is telling you, market is saying, oil's too expensive right now, just no one knows how quick it's going to drop. Mm -hmm. Could be a month could be two years. Right. But the market is telling you based upon the futures curve that these prices are not sustainable. 
Yeah, and people might ask, they're like, well, why why are people, you know, why are oil companies just starting to get more rigs online and drilling now? Well, there's a break-even point with oil, right? Big go. So if oil prices are really low and what we saw a couple of years ago went negative, you know, there's no incentive for these companies to drill because they're not going to make any money. But yeah. when oil prices rise, you see rigs come back online because they can drill and make a profit at that point. In time. And what they're able to do, Mark, and it's similar to what farmers do every year. They could go out there and be drilling a new hole, sell the oil on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange 18 months from now for, say, 85 a barrel. Boom, they're locking in their profit. Mm -hmm. All they got to do is extract the oil to make it happen. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'll have a piece on this because a lot of people, you know, have been talking about they're like, it seems like when oil prices rise, gas prices are quick to rise along with it. But then they're like, when oil prices fall, why doesn't gas fall as quick as it rises when oil goes up? So I have a piece next week that's going to talk about that. I look forward to that. Yep. All right. My next piece is putting what I and I'm gonna do air quotes for those that are listening uh, in, in, you know, on the podcast, not on YouTube, putting the market expected moves of interest rates into perspective. Okay. So the tweet on this uh, was macro compass on March 30th. It is a chart that shows recent Federal Reserve hiking cycles since 1994. And it shows how many months that they were raising and how quick they went up. And so what I want to do is this chart will show the 94 to 95 interest rate cycle hike, 04 to 06, 99 to 00. It'll show 15 to 18. And then it overlays in a red dotted plot what the Federal Reserve is actually communicating to the market what their intention is. Mm -hmm. And so this is an important chart because the feeling in the market is we haven't been through times like this before. That's what I keep hearing. Matt, haven't seen interest rates go up this quick before. What's going to happen? False. Mm -hmm. Very false. Mm -hmm. So if let's look at the return of the S&P 500 index in 1994, because if you look at this chart, it is the same trajectory of interest rate rises in the 94-95 time period under Alan Greenspan, okay? Mm -hmm. So, in 1994, S&P for the calendar year, down 1.54%. In 1995, it was up 34.11%, and in 1996, it was up 20.26%. I bet investors in 1994 didn't see that coming. When I started in the industry in 1999, brokers were still talking about how hard 1994 was. It was in, just in solidified, ingrained in their memory. And, and then the you look at those year, returns after percent and a half. You're sitting there and thinking it was down 1.54 percent. Mm -hmm. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. Perspective. All right. We've been through times like this before. Yeah, it's like it's like COVID. It's like you know people are always going to talk about, and we'll always remember how tough. March of 2020 was, but the S&P 500 ended up like 18 and a half percent by the end of the year. So people just looking back at returns Good point. are like, oh, that was an easy year. Good point. I mean, I remember still being at our, at our, our trading systems and to see intraday swings on the S&P and NASDAQ of double digits in a day. 
I, I'm going to speculate, and in our long careers that are ahead of us, probably less than 10 instances that will ever occur, probably less than that. Yeah, it was wild. Very rare. Yeah. It's very rare. All right. Next thing. One thing to keep an eye on, consumer sentiment, Mark, a tweet by Bloomberg Opinion on March 28th. Until recently, U.S. households have mostly absorbed higher prices, but that doesn't mean consumers were happy about paying more for the same goods, which is why the University of Michigan Sentiment Index has steadily deteriorated to its lowest level since 2011. Now, Jenna's going to put this chart up um, on, the, on, the, on the TV, on the, on the YouTube video, and it'll be on our show notes, Mark. This chart will go back to 2016, and it shows, again, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index and it's gotten plummeted on mm -hmm. this. And so this is something I want to keep a close eye on, because if this continues, my perception is the consumer's hanging in there right now. And I'm basing that perception on a lot of data I'm looking at. But if these inflation numbers continue for a couple more quarters, I do think you could see the consumer pull back. I'm anticipating that as employment gets better, they would make the supply chains get better, it's going to help inflation as well as with what the Fed is doing. I think those two things will work, but this is definitely something I'm going to be keeping a close eye on. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's starting to or it has already, you know, inflation has rippled through the economy and people are seeing these higher and higher prices. And just people that I've talked to have been mentioning that to me, too. So I feel like that's, you know, that's playing into this number a lot right now. See, it's crazy because then I see, and you're exactly right, Mark, and then I see then um, airline ticket prices this summer are the highest I've, I've ever seen them, mm -hmm. okay? And people are still buying them. Yeah. We just had, I heard uh, Royal uh, Caribbean, the cruise line say, in the last roughly seven days, they've had the most bookings in seven days in the lifetime of the company. Crazy. And it just goes to show you that people are willing to spend on that type of stuff and they're willing to look past the price increases. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Uh, I'm going to transition this week. I'm doing the financial planning topic of the week. And the topic mark is appealing Medicare premium surcharges. thought this would be timely with where we're at with the calendar this year. Okay. Okay. So this is an article that I got from uh, Sarah O'Brien, and this was published on March 30th, and this was uh, posted on CNBC mm -hmm. in their personal finance section. Yeah. Can we go over just briefly what Medicare premium surcharges are? Yep. It'll be part of this. Oh, great. Yep. I'll cover it all. Okay. So roughly 7% of Medicare's 63.3 million beneficiaries with income above a set threshold pay of income-related monthly adjustment amounts, or the term IRMAAs, in addition to their standard premiums for Part B, that's the outpatient, and Part D, which is prescription, if you fall under a certain amount where you make, quote-unquote, too much, they're going to start surcharging and making your Medicare premium more. Right. So even if you're retired and you're on Medicare, but you have income above certain thresholds, and I'll go over the thresholds you're going to you're going to pay more than other people that are making less than you. You got it. You got it. And I'll cover those thresholds here in a second. So often um, let me just talk about what that is. So for 2022, these thresholds kick in for individuals with modified adjusted gross income 
of more than 91,000, okay? For married couples filing joint returns, the surcharges begin above 182,000 mark. The extra charges increase at higher income thresholds. So that's not the only threshold. That's just where it begins, mm -hmm. okay? So the standard monthly premium for Part B this year is $170.10, which is what most Medicare beneficiaries will pay. Per month. Per month, my friend. Okay. Part A, which provides hospital coverage, typically comes with no premium. The surcharge for higher earners range from as low as $68 a month to $408.20 per month, depending upon your income. That results in monthly premiums ranging from $238 and some change upwards of $578 per month. In addition, Part D, that's prescription, the surcharges for 2022 range from $12.40 upwards of $77.90. And again, that's in addition to any premium you pay, whether through a standalone prescription drug plan or through a Medicare Advantage plan which typically includes Part D. While the premiums on various prescription coverages will average around $33. So here's where the rubber hits the road. The process to prove that your current income is lower involves asking the Social Security Administration to reconsider its assessment. You have to fill out a form SSA-44 and provide supporting documents. Suitable proof may include a more recent tax return if one is available, a letter from your employer stating that you retired, more recent pay stubs, or something similar showing evidence your income has dropped. So let's pause for a second. Let's say that this lags, okay? Yeah, it so, does. So let's say that in 2020, your income was really high, and then it refreshes in, 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 in 21. That is a lagging effect and if your income drops substantially here in 2022, you can prove to them that, hey, Social Security Administration, I'm not making what I made a couple of years ago. Your dad is old. Let me prove to you I'm not making as much so you don't have to pay those surcharges. Right. Right? Yeah. Okay. So if your efforts don't work, if you file these forms and they don't work, it says you can appeal the decision to an administrative law judge, although the process could take time and you have to continue paying those surcharges in the meantime. Additionally, your situation is reevaluated every year, which means that these surcharges could change annually depending upon how volatile your income is. So the reason I wanted to bring this up is if you've gotten some surcharges this year and you're thinking, you shouldn't be paying those and your income is dropped, there is a remedy for that. So once again, you could probably go to ssa.gov, locate the form 44, SSA form 44, and you can submit that along with supporting documents to request that they get rid of or lower that surcharge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and why, why is this important? This is important because initially i think people are going to hear this and they're going to be like okay if people are making you know four hundred thousand dollars in retirement income they can handle the four hundred dollar per month increase while yes that's true you have to also think about if you're someone that 
doesn't usually have that much in income, but you sell a portion of your taxable investment portfolio to buy a second home or to buy a car, what have you, your income is going to be higher for that year. And the following year, what's going to get you? your premiums are going to increase. So you have to, that's why tax planning and retirement, especially when you're on Medicare, is so vitally important that you don't throw yourself into another surcharge for Medicare premiums. You know, sometimes people talk about, you know, this happening and having to submit the documents. And I know it's a hassle. Yeah. But it's worth it. Right. Right. So, yeah, that's a great, great article. Thank you. Uh, I had one question, Matt, um, from Jerry, and it has to do with uh, the U.S. dollar and reserve currency. I know you talked about this a bit on episode number 140, but Jerry specifically asks, these times seem to be producing what could be very detrimental happenings in the monetary world. What is your current understanding of the impact of the loss or potential loss of petrodollar status or reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar in terms of inflation and impact on the stock market? Well, I mean, my initial reaction is, is twofold. The first thing that comes to mind is, you know, a majority of the world's trading in these commodities are still done in the U.S., which then a lot of that is done and denominated in dollars. OK, so when I go back to my notes from 140 for Jerry, the first thing that comes up is, um, this piece, it was from Bloomberg, is the source. So the date on this data is March 3rd, Mark. So it's pretty recent. And it shows that the dollar makes up a majority of global currency reserves, easily topping the euro, which is second. So the dollar makes up 55% of worldwide reserves. The closest second is the euro, which is a little bit less than 20% actually. It's dominant. Now, I know a lot of people are seeing these headlines that Saudi Arabia is going to be connecting up with China to do some um, energy transactions and that those transactions are going to be denominated in the yuan. Yeah. Okay. The Bloomberg article talked about this, and I'm going to read this. It says, China has been trying to sell the yuan as a substitute, but less than 3% of the world's FX reserves are denominated in yuan. On top of that, only 3% of global transactions are conducted in the yuan as well. And it goes on to say, and while the U.S. brand of democracy can easily seem messy at times, investors take comfort in the country's adherence to the rule of law. Yeah. And what else, you know, what also, I guess, I don't know, I guess you can say give me comfort is that foreign countries are still buying U.S. debt, right? And Big time. And, you know, if that stopped, yeah, I'd be a little bit more concerned, but that hasn't stopped. Even with interest rates getting as low as they have, foreign countries are still buying U.S. debt. Um, so that's another piece that I just want to throw in there that doesn't make me as concerned that this is an imminent issue. Could it be in the future? Yeah. But that's exactly what I was going to say, Mark. Is this something longer term that should be, when I say longer term, I'm talking multi-decades. Right. Is it something where China could eventually get there? They could. But it kind of goes back to the last sentence. And I'll say it one more time. And while the U.S. brand of democracy can seem messy at times, investors take comfort in the country's adherence to the rule of law. 
You know, if you're denominating a currency that is completely controlled, they peg their currency to others. It doesn't float in the market. That's concern number one. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then concern number two is ultimately, if it's a country that has, it's a communist country, it technically is that they have different rules of law than Western nations do. And so I'm just not on that camp. Now, could China be more market friendly and make some changes over the next couple of decades? It's quite possible. Mm -hmm. And could the yuan become more dominant? Absolutely. In the near term, I just don't see it. Yeah. And I think where this kind of stems from is, you know, there's articles out there that, you know, obviously Russia's been cut off from SWIFT and quote unquote the financial system and they're finding ways around that. But should we really be surprised by that? No, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, kind of goes also on the fact that people think that the West sanctioning oil means uh, Russia's not going to be able to sell it, which they will. They're just going to sell it to other people. Right. And those people won't buy it from others right. like India and China. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, as much as they want the sanctions to work, more of it is just for the actual theatrics of we are going to impose these sanctions but you have to really ask the teeth that's associated with it. Some of them do, and I, and I won't get around that. Yeah. But the feeling that the sanctions are going to avoid them from selling energy, in my opinion, is a falsehood. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Thanks for adding some color to that. Um, anything else before we leave it here uh, for the week? Next week is the beginning of earnings season with a lot of the big banks. Yep. The big mega banks start next week. So you're going to see those headlines. If you see some volatility in individual names and you wonder what it might be, good chance it's their earnings report. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to episode number 144 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will see you back here next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.